If you have a Bible this morning, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 55 for our Old Testament scripture reading. Here the prophet Isaiah calls upon the people of God to seek the Lord when he is still able to be found because we have a God who does and accomplishes all that he has purposed to do. Here we are told of the power of God's redemptive word. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 to 11. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. If I can just stop for a moment there. Notice that. Why is it that the Lord is so abundantly willing to forgive and pardon? Because He's not like us. God's mercy and compassion distinguishes Himself from the host of humanity. Verse 10, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven... They do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. In other words, God does what he wants, and what he is determined to do will come to pass. Now, if you turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. So we continue to give consideration to this prayer that our Savior has taught us to pray. And, and notice what Jesus is doing here. He's not simply saying pray in these like words, but to pray in this manner, pray in this way. Here he is giving a model, not for simple rote repetition, but this is establishing the contours of what one's prayer life ought to look, look like. And this morning we'll give attention to the third petition, but I'd like us to read uh, the whole prayer. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. Uh, Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. Let's go before the Lord now as we pray. Our gracious God and Father, as we have gathered together to hear your word, we pray that we would hear our Savior speak from heaven, that we would know your will and by your Spirit be enabled to do your will, that we might submit to your will. We ask all of these things in Christ's name. Amen. I mean, imagine with me if tomorrow you were to head down before work to the local coffee shop and sitting at the coffee shop, you decided to ask the person sitting next to you, what is your purpose in life? What sort of response do you think you would find? I think many around us would speak immediately in terms of dreams, of one's own personal aspirations, perhaps even in terms of self-fulfillment. Perhaps one would speak of his purpose in being an entrepreneur, that self-made man who lives by his own rules. Perhaps here, particularly in Corvallis, one would 
perhaps speak of being an activist, the reformer who is ever seeking to change the world. I think were we to stumble upon a fellow believer, we might hear something similar. God's purpose for me, His will for me, is to be happy, to be complete, to be fulfilled. I think when it comes to the day today, there are many of us who view God's will as, we might put it, a Christianized version of the horoscope, seeking some type of mystical experience that enables us to find purpose and direction in life. It's not that these are necessarily bad questions. I think these are questions that we all have struggled or continue to struggle with. What is God's will for my life, especially as a young adult? I think there are many here going, well, what should I do once I graduate from high school? Should I be a banker or a lawyer? Should I go to trade school or college? Which college, if I am to go to college, should I attend? Should I get married? And if so, to whom? Where should I live? The list goes on and on and on. And these are very important questions to ask as they give shape. Uh, to uh, the future of how it is that we live our lives in these bodies. But how many of us have sought some form of mystical answer to the question under the guise of doing God's will? Where we treat seeking God's will as not something different from uh, examining uh, ancient tea leaves or palm readings or reading one's daily horoscope. See, I think there's a hidden danger here when taken to the extreme. When improperly understood, this can somewhat become somewhat paralyzing instead of liberating. I once have known uh, somebody, actually several people, who were unable to make a single decision apart from some form of quote-unquote spiritual prompting. Should I eat at McDonald's or Wendy's today? Should I wear my brown coat or my blue sweater what if I get it wrong? You see the danger there. there. There is a desire to want to do God's will, but there is a, 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 a lack of knowledge as to what it is that God wills for us to do. As if He is to determine or tell us everything of every aspect of our lives, what type of shoes we should wear each day, or where it is that we, which route we should take when we get to work. Might I suggest that when it comes to such an approach of knowing God's will, that this is not only unwise and unhelpful, but it is, in fact, a pagan understanding of knowing God's will. You see, this morning when Jesus teaches us to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he is teaching us what it means to know and to do God's will. Instead of seeing every choice as being, uh, of ours as being left to some type of subjective prompting or experience where we are left to misread the signs of providence and assume that we can know God's will through mystical or esoteric experiences, Christ has given us something more solid. And something that, when properly understood, becomes much more liberating. You see, Israel was faced with a similar problem as they stood upon the plains of Moab as they were about to enter pagan territory. Though the nation sought counsel from local deities through the dark arts to make their daily decisions, this was not to be the case for Israel. As the nation renews its covenant with the maker of heaven and earth, Moses tells the nation how they are to live. That's from Deuteronomy chapter 29. 
Moses, Pastor Moses, says this, The secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. What is that distinction that Moses gives here? Those things that God has revealed to us regarding his will, and those things in terms of his will and his purposes that are still hidden from our sight. I think this is a helpful distinction here to help us understand what our Savior is getting at. We should not read the Lord's Prayer apart from the rest of the counsel and wisdom of Scripture because it all comes to us from the same author. When we pray the third petition, your will be done, there are two distinct ways, two aspects by which we can speak of or understand God's will. There are the hidden things. That is, God's will in terms of the things that he has decreed to take place. What's going to happen on the political stage or arena on Thursday or Saturday or on Tuesday night at 6.54 p.m. in November 2027? Those things that we just don't know. Those are the hidden things the Lord knows because he's determined the end from the beginning. Those are the hidden things, and those are not for us to know. But there are the revealed things that tell us what God's will is for how we should live our lives in the here and now. They are his precepts. And I think our shorter catechism, as we confessed our faith together this morning, is very helpful here in giving shape to understanding what Jesus is telling us about God's will. It brings into focus both aspects of God's will for our lives. In knowing what he has revealed in his law, and in submitting to his daily providences, as we don't know what's going to happen day after day after day. And yet we submit ourselves to his fatherly care, knowing that he does. And those things that he has not revealed to us. And I think this will form the two parts to our sermons we consider this third petition. First, we'll consider knowing God's will. And secondly, we'll consider submitting to God's will, that we might be better enabled to do God's will. So two things, knowing and submitting. It might be useful here to stop and consider how this third petition differs from the second. Right? What was the second petition? Right? Your kingdom come. How does that differ from this third petition when we pray that God's will would be done? Right? If the consummation of the kingdom as we considered last week, is the fulfillment of God's will on earth, is this third petition simply a repetition of the second petition? Does that make sense? Are we praying for the same thing as with the second petition, or is something different being brought into view here? I think there is some overlap, but nevertheless a difference. Note the analogy that Christ gives here in the third petition. Your will be done. How? What's the manner in which we are praying for his will to be done? As in heaven so on earth. Here our attention is drawn back to the highest courts of the heavenly sphere. How is it that the angels in heaven do God's will? Do they do it imperfectly? Half-heartedly? Disobediently? No. The angels in heaven, the host of heaven does God's will perfectly, fully, and completely. How does that compare or contrast with uh, how the human race exists here on earth? Right, the human race does not do His will. The, God, the, the human race does not do what God 
requires. Most rarely, I think, even contemplate what it is that God wants in terms of any substantive thing other than using God as an excuse to kind of rubber stamp our own personal desires and aspirations. In other words, what we're seeing here, when Jesus uses this analogy, your will be done in earth, on earth as it is in heaven, here he's bringing into view the question of submitting to the things that God commands. Just as God governs the heavens and the host of heaven submits to his governance and his will, so too we pray that the Lord would do so here on earth. If the second petition is asking for God to bring all of his plans and purposes to fulfillment in the consummation of the kingdom, this third petition is saying, as it were, and, and begin with us. Align my will with your will. May I be enabled to know and to understand and to do the things that you require. We are praying that we would be made obedient to his commands. It's one of the great tragedies of human history, the great tragedy of Adam's rebellion. It's the consequence that his rebellion had on the human will. Man becomes turned in on himself. As Augustine writes in Luther, he becomes crooked. Uh, his, his dreams, his aspirations, every, everything becomes self-oriented, self-reflected. He becomes selfish. His desires are corrupted. His will becomes hell-bent on doing the very things that God hates. That's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8. The mind that is set on the flesh is uh, contrary to the things of the Spirit. It's, con, it, it, it's, it's opposed to the things that God delights in. And that's where we find the status of the human race today, unredeemed humanity. Every man is doing what he sees as right in his own eyes, not according to any objective standard, not in subjection to the true God of creation. In other words, the fallen human will is hostile to God's kingship and law. It's become maligned, distorted, disrupted by sin. Scripture tells us that God has given us his moral law to expose that disharmony that exists between heaven and earth. That's why Paul will speak of the law as something like a mirror. It shows us where we fall short. It shows us where our will does not align with his will. That's why Paul writes to the church of Ephesus. He says, at one time you were once darkness, but now you are a light in the Lord. Therefore, walk as children of the light. And therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Notice that that distinction Paul makes there between wisdom and folly is not found in, uh, you know, folly is not bound up in, in the, 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 the student who fails his chemistry test on Thursday morning. Right? He says, do not be foolish, but rather wisdom consists in what? The opposite of folly, in knowing and discerning God's will for our lives. So one of the things that we find is that even in the midst of human sin and rebellion, God has made his will known. Just as Paul writes to the church of Rome, saying that every human heart knows God's righteous requirements, yet seeks to suppress the truth in their unrighteousness. It's like a, like a child at the beach with a beach ball. You ever gone out to the, I guess out here you call it the coast. You probably go, don't, don't go out to the coast and into the water because it's too cold out here. But I grew up in Florida. You go out to the water and you take a beach ball try to submerge it under the water, what happens? The beach ball pops back up and hits you in the face. So what do you do? You kind of, you jump and you try to suppress it more and more, but the more and more you try to suppress that beach ball, the more and more it just pops back up out of the water. 
That's the image that Paul gives of the human race that they try, they know they're without excuse, they're rendered inexcusable because they know God's righteous requirements because the host of heaven shouts God's handiwork, his power and his deity, his godness. And though they know the truth, by their unrighteousness, they try to suppress that truth in their unrighteousness, by their unrighteousness. Why is it that there are so many people these days, in recent years, hooting and hollering about gay and transgender rights? I think it's simple because they know that it's wrong. And so they have to shout louder and louder and louder to to, to, to drown out their own consciences, to try to sear their own consciences, to convince themselves that they are right. Even though God's holy law, even though all of creation shouts the exact opposite. So that in time, through all the shouting, through all the screaming, the individual's conscience grows numb, deafened to what God requires regarding his righteous requirements, regarding those moral duties. And yet Paul says mankind is still rendered without excuse. And so God in his mercy has given his laws an absolute standard there's no you can't you can't skirt under this this is this is what my moral will requires of you and graciously it's been given to us in God's word summarized and I found exclusively only in this particular section but summarized in the 10 commandments as an expression of the fullness of God's moral will for our lives. We see it everywhere refracted through Scripture. That's what I mean when I say it's not found exclusively to Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy 5. We see it everywhere in the Bible. Think of what Micah the prophet says. God has shown you what he requires. He requires that you love justice and practice kindness and walk in humility with your God. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, this is God's will, that you give thanks in all circumstances. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is God's will. What is God's will? It is your sanctification that you abstain from every form of sexual immorality. I once knew a lady who one day walked up to her husband and said, God has told me to divorce you. So she divorced her husband, though he had done her no harm. She was just done with it. And so she claimed that the, the Spirit of God had spoken to her heart and given her the freedom to be free of this marriage. How are you to evaluate that? Well, we return to God's word and it says that God has spoken through the prophet Malachi that he hates the violence of divorce. He who divorces his wife, and we can also say vice versa, covers his garments with violence and God hates it. It is an abomination to him. And yet people claim they do these things and say, well, God has told me this. No, God has expressly revealed His will through Scripture. These are His requirements. And just because you think God has spoken, you say, well, that might just be the pizza you had at 2 a.m. That might just be your own sinful desires. Trying to use God once again as a rubber stamp to approve your own sinful behavior. God has spoken infallibly in His Word. This is why our, our Savior says when we get to Matthew chapter 7, it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Who's going to enter the kingdom of heaven? But the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. 
It's not teaching justification by works, by the way. But it is saying those who have been truly redeemed are going to want to do God's will. And so when we pray, your will be done on earth, we are in essence saying, let your will be done, but begin in my own heart. You think what the psalmist prays, give me understanding that I might keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it, and incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Did you catch that last part? Incline my heart. Even the psalmist knows that apart from the working and prompting, the real prompting of the Spirit, the human will is bent on its own sinful behavior. And so we need the work of the Spirit to incline our heart to do, not only to do God's will, but to desire to do God's will from the heart. Elsewhere we find in the Psalms, David praying, Unite my heart to fear your name. Here the psalmist recognizes his inner man has been disordered by sin. His thoughts, his desires, his will is running as far as it can from God's will. And so he prays that God would be at work to bring his own will into harmony with God's. Hebrews chapter 13, one of the great benedictions we find at the end of that book, that our God would equip us with everything good to do what? That we might do his will. What is he given to equip us? He's given us His Word and His Spirit. As we treasure up His Word in our hearts, it's given that we might learn how not to sin against Him. He has given us His Spirit who enables us to put those sinful inclinations to death and walk according to keep in step with the Spirit, as Paul writes. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you might discern what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So when Scripture speaks of knowing and discerning God's will, it's not given to us so we can figure out whether or not we want to go to Applebee's or Chili's for dinner. The answer, of course, is Chili's. just not on Sundays. The focus is on God's moral will. That just as the angels in heaven obey God, so too ought we to obey God here on earth. When making a decision, use the Ten Commandments to guide your living. Not just the Ten Commandments, but all of Scripture. But the Ten Commandments provides, it's a helpful crib sheet, isn't it? As you're making these life decisions, either big or small, ask yourself, does what I am about to do cause me to worship another god? What I am about to do, would this tarnish God's reputation? Will this cause me to break the Sabbath? Will I be engaging in gossip or theft or illicit sexual activity? Does this particular action feed my covetous heart? See, here is where we're beginning to learn what it means to know God's will and to do God's will. These are the questions that we need to ask. What does God require? And then we will let wisdom guide the rest. A favorite quote that I have come across time and time again attributed to both Augustine and Luther is this, love God and do as you please. Think of the great freedom that's found in that. 
You seek to love the Lord according to His moral will, and then you have the freedom to determine whether or not you can wear a, a brown suit or a blue sweater. You don't have to be paralyzed by these other questions. Of course, you let other uh, questions of wisdom guide you. Can I afford this? Is it, is it the right thing to go this time of night? Uh, you know, all those other things, you know, a bigger question to ask and, and, and seeking to, to marry someone. Paul, remember, Paul gives wisdom there in 1 Corinthians 7. Paul says, well, any Christian is free to marry. One condition, though, they must marry in the Lord. So the foundational question then, is that person a believer or not? Well, if not, you cannot date them. You cannot marry them, full stop. End of discussion. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. But I think anybody who has been seeking a potential spouse knows that there are more questions to ask. Hey, babe, are you a Christian? Yes or no? Fine. Great. You want to get married? There are other wise questions you need to be asking. The discussion does not end with can I or can't I, but also, you know, not simply is it permissible, but is it prudent? Can I afford it? Are we compatible? Do we have the same life goals? You know, there's a longer list here, but the point is that there's freedom in these things. The Lord gives us His law to tell us what we can and cannot do, and then He gives us principles for wisdom to, to navigate those difficult life decisions within those proper bounds of what we're allowed and we have the freedom to do. We need to remember that the Lord has given us His law to, to grant us freedom, not to constrain us. We've been delivered from bondage to sin. Sin is what enslaves us. But now that we are the children of light, we are called to walk in the light and freedom, and we are to love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then we get this freedom to do so many other things as we seek to love the Lord in light of His moral and revealed will. So that's one half of the equation, right? Knowing God's moral will, actively pursuing the things that He requires of all men. But then there's the second half, and it's submitting to those daily providences that attend our way. Again, God is sovereign in all things, even when you get a flat tire. What do you do when that happens? God has ordained all things to come to pass. He is king over all creation. And yet I think for, most, for the bulk of us, most of the things that God has ordained, if it were left up to our wisdom, we probably would not have picked it in the way that God has. Further reminder that God knows better than us. But I think for many of us, when we are left in the thick of it, in the midst of suffering and affliction, we think we know better than God. What an awful thought. And yet we're still struck with the reality of suffering and affliction in this life. What do you do when terror strikes at home? When sickness comes? When a mortifying doctor's report attends your most recent medical visit? When you're beset with chronic illness or affliction or even persecution? We are reminded that God does all things according to the purposes of His will. God has ordained for each of us to endure particular trials, given in His sovereign grace for a particular purpose, to make us look like His Son. That's why I love the 
first question to the Heidelberg Catechism, what is your only comfort in life and in death? My only comfort in life and in death is that I am not my own, but that that I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with His precious blood has fully delivered me and redeemed me from the power of the devil. And not a hair can fall from my head apart from the will of my heavenly Father in heaven. In other words, the great comfort we have is that even in the midst of affliction, this does not happen apart from God's will. Therefore, when suffering does happen, God has ordained it for a purpose. And we are left to pray, Your will be done. Those hidden things that I don't understand, let them be done on earth as it is in heaven. Think of what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10. You have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. God puts us through affliction, but then He provides us and enables us with the endurance needed to endure those afflictions as He uses it as a crucible to shape us in cruciformity to His beloved Son. And isn't that the purpose of sanctification? Not only to wash us of our sins, but to purge us of those sinful behaviors. And the Lord uses suffering and affliction to that end. Not just to purge us of sin, but also just simply to make us look like Christ, even in those areas where there might not be sin involved. Now, most likely for, I think, most of us, there will be sin involved, and the Lord works to purge us of those things. But but you think of the the greatest example we have in the New Testament regarding this is, is Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here Christ is, who himself was sinless, him who has never sinned nor ever will sin. And yet by his obedience, he is being brought to the cross. In his final final moments as he's about to be betrayed by Judas, knowing full well he is about to be betrayed, knowing that he is about to endure the suffering and humiliation and the agony of becoming, becoming the covenant curse for the people of God, he prays two things. Father, if it be possible, deliver me from this cup. Remove this cup from me. And then what's the follow-up prayer? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. It's not that the eternally begotten Son has a distinct will from the Father, but that the Son of God incarnate in His human nature subjects His human will to the will of the Father as a pattern for us of what it looks like to endure these painful trials. Peter reminds us that suffering for doing good is sometimes a part of God's will. Sometimes you suffer not because you've sinned, Sometimes you suffer because you've actually done the right thing. And you know what? God has still not fallen off of His throne in the times when that happens. Notice here, when we consider Christ's prayer in the garden, there is nothing wrong with praying for deliverance from certain trials. Paul himself prayed for a thorn to be removed from his side. He's never criticized for praying the prayer, even though he's told no. There's nothing wrong with praying that, saying, Lord, you know, this is painful, Lord, deliver me. Deliver me from this affliction. 
Deliver me from this present trial. Deliver me from uh, this, this uh, horrendous kind of medical prognosis that's hanging over my head. Nevertheless, whatever you decide, let your will be done, not mine. See, there's nothing wrong praying for deliverance from certain trials, but more importantly is this third petition that God, in His infinite wisdom, would do as He pleases and would bring to fruition the thing He has desired to do, even when we do not understand why. What radical, childlike trust this is when we submit our will to God's, even when we don't know why these things are taking place the way that they are. You think of Job in the midst of such horrendous suffering. What is it that he says? He says, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. You think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they're being told that they must bend the knee to a pagan emperor. And they said, we will not, for the Lord will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we still will not, we still will not compromise. Because we find God's will. What He has revealed to us, which is, you shall have no other gods before me, to be of greater importance than even our very lives. And it's in the midst of that that God accomplishes His purposes. He, through that, some He delivers through the fire. Some die in the fire. And yet what a glorious hope we have in those resurrection promise that though all of us are subject to death and the grave, that not even death is going to have the final say on the last day. At the cross, the sting of death is removed. Death simply becomes a sleeping chamber. On the last day, Christ comes and He says to all who have fallen asleep in the Lord, it's time to wake up. There is no need to be afraid. And so isn't it more important to do the will of our Father? Do not fear the one who can cast the body into the fire, but fear the one who can cast body and soul into hell. You see, ultimately God works out all things according to His purposes to this end, that He might make known the great salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And on account of our hard hearts, He often employs trials to break us, that we might know the grace of Christ, a grace that we would not have known otherwise. And at times this might mean having a chronic illness to our dying breath, despite those prayers for deliverance of which we are allowed to pray for. Sometimes this might mean a life of singleness for someone who wishes to marry, though all believers are free and permitted to marry in the Lord. Sometimes this might mean a job that does not pay as much as you wish it did, though there's nothing wrong with other believers making more money. Sometimes this might mean having a smaller ministry than your ego wishes it could have, though there's nothing wrong with other ministers having bigger ministries. See, the Lord does everything in His wisdom, and He has tailor-made and fashioned a cross for each of us. So that there's nothing that happens in our lives that does not happen apart from His will, and He does it for our good. These daily trials He does employ to sanctify us and draw us closer to Him because our Father in heaven knows our frame. He knows us better than we know our own frames. 
And as He tailor makes a cross for each of us, He so works afflictions in our lives according to His will that He might prepare us for glory, that He might draw us closer to Him, and that He might keep us from lethargy and apostasy. If we could have our way and have everything we wanted, would not those very things likely be the things that would have kept us from God? If we had all the money and wealth in the world, how many of us would even remember God? Perhaps it's in our poverty and living day to day. Perhaps it's in our suffering and our affliction and weakness that God in His mercy has ordained these things because He knows our frame, particularly knowing that these are, it's, it's like bowling with the, the, the bumper lanes. These are the things that keep the bowling ball from veering off into the gutter. So He employs these daily trials and afflictions particularly suited to each one of us to keep us from falling into the gutter. So that when afflictions come, we can look on them and know how to respond as His revealed will requires. And we could say regarding His hidden will, not my will, but yours be done. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray that You would help us to know Your moral will more fully, that we might love You more deeply and live more freely, as You have granted us great freedom in the Lord Jesus Christ. As we uh, daily encounter new trials and sorrows, we pray uh, that we would have the strength by the power of Your Spirit to bear under them and that we might submit to Your hidden will in all things, as well as Your revealed will, and say, with the saints of old, that Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.